morning as we look here at this amazing passage of transfiguration, as you see there in verse 29, that the appearance of our Lord's face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Um, Quite a passage uh, of occurrence, what's taking place in our Lord at that point in time. I don't know how much time you've spent considering what occurred in the transfiguration. What is it that's taking place? Certainly, as we should note, an important feature of the transfiguration that he uh, didn't change in composition. He didn't cease to be Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't become someone else in this moment. Significantly, he remained uh, recognizable to the disciples. Uh, He didn't metaphysically change. So what did occur in the transfiguration? Or perhaps a better question is, what does the transfiguring of our Lord mean? When we read such a passage, what, what is actually occurring There are two key pieces, I think, that lie around and within the passage of transfiguration that I would like to spend some time on this morning that help us and guide us toward understanding that that phenomenological experience, that that amazing uh, movement of heavenly light coming off of our Lord in the presence of these men. There are two contextual features that I would like us to look at for a few moments that will help us, if we gaze through the lens of these surrounding pieces, it will help us get toward what the meaning of the transfiguration is. Why is this occurring? I want to give them to you up front and then explore them together with you. They are, number one, the surrounding features or the two contextual contributions, we could say, that help us get at the substance of the transfiguration are number one, the divine promise regarding the kingdom. The divine promise regarding the kingdom. This is our our one kind of of, of spectacles. Here's our first lens or, or our first piece of glass for our eyewear of looking at this text, and that is the divine promise regarding the kingdom. And the second piece, or that second piece of of glass we can pop in into the spectacles to be able to look through the lens and get at the substance of the text is number two, Jesus' prayerfulness. These two pieces of the text, again, will help us get at what is occurring or why is the transfiguration occurring in light of the divine promise regarding the kingdom, and number two, Jesus' prayerfulness. Consider first the divine promise regarding the kingdom that helps us understand the why or what is taking place in the transfiguration. Jump up from what was read for you in verse 28. Jump up just a little into verse 27. Last week, we ended with actually verse 26. 27, or the English text has verse 27 kind of break away from chapter 28, or or verse 28. But but if we could, for the sake of our reading, as we can make sense of the transfiguration, we need necessarily jump back up into verse 27. Look at verse 27 with me just briefly. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
So right here, as we move from the call and cost of discipleship that we looked at last week, the bridge into our text of transfiguration is this divine promise regarding there are some standing here who will see the kingdom of God. They will not die before this occurs. Now, consider at this point in time, there are many people standing there. So you have, in some sense, you have uh, the disciples certainly are present. We don't know how many people from the crowds are still following him at this point. If you look in verse 28, uh, uh, Luke records, this occurrence of transfiguration occurred about eight days after these sayings. Uh, so, So exactly when all of this is occurring by now, how many people are standing there, I'm not exactly sure. But when in verse 27 he says there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, we recognize that within the scope of everyone, let's say that everybody from the crowds earlier that have eaten their fill of the loaves were present, or even a portion of them. Anyone at this point in the story, anyone in this point in the gospel who has either heard the word of God preached or seen it displayed in power, whether it be over miracles of the provision of the bread with perhaps some of the people here, or it be with the healing of an individual, uh, or raising someone from the dead, or if they had seen the power where Jesus calmed the seas. In that sense, many people had already seen or observed the kingdom of God. So already somewhere within this text, there is a distinction being made between Jesus' earthly ministry and his future coming glory. There is some distinction being made in the kingdom of God, in its display, in its power, that is not simply comprehended in the preaching of the word, is not comprehended in the miracles that have been displayed. There is some distinction that he is making between there are some standing here who will not die until they see the kingdom of God. Now, who are these individuals that are going to see in some measure a fuller disclosure of the kingdom of God? Because again, it's not that no one had heard it and no one had seen its power, but there is something more complete. There is a fuller disclosure to come. So who are they? Well, if you follow the text from verse 27, again, I tell you there are some standing right here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. Now we're getting insight into who was standing there and a subgroup out of that, those people who were standing there, who are about to witness something distinct from his earthly ministry. They're going to observe some that were there, Peter, James, and John, now narrows the group over who is not going to die until they see the power of the coming kingdom. So consider the selection. Why would it be just Peter, James, and John? We'll jump back over into chapter 8, a passage that we've already covered a few weeks ago. But it's not that surprising that the Lord makes this particular selection here. Look back in chapter 8. He has already indicated this select group to us. 
Beginning in verse 49, you recall the situation, this, this uh, Jairus' daughter, uh, she is ill. He has asked, it's a 12-year-old girl. He has asked the Lord to come to perform a healing to help her before she dies. And then these events occur in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. What a wonderful passage this is. Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James. And the father of the mother of the child, and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was indeed dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat, that evidence of resurrection. Um, 56, and her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So already in that instance, we have him come to the house, and then many people standing within the foyer of the home, or many people within the family room of the home, and he allows only to go with him to see this resurrection event, Peter, James, and John. Now we move to chapter 9, and there are some who are standing here in this general group who will not die until they see the kingdom of God. And he takes with him to this experience the same men, Peter, James, and John. What do we learn from this? These two stories growing together, we see similar here in chapter 9 as with chapter 8, that these men are simply experiencing the closest relationship to Christ out of the group of disciples. That is, these men form what we would consider to be Jesus' inner circle. They experience a closer union to him in discipleship than the experience of the others. So uniquely, they have this experience of accompanying him to the mountain where they will do what? See a fuller disclosure of the coming of the kingdom. So with this understanding of the kingdom, the promise that some will see a fuller disclosure of the kingdom, and that being Peter, James, and John, we can already begin to understand what the transfiguration is about. Simply put, we would say that the transfiguration, with this first of two pieces in play, we realize the transfiguration is about the inbreaking of the future kingdom into the present. That's what it's about. That's the first piece that we learn by tying 27 into 28. Why is is glorious heavenly light emanating from our Lord? Why is this occurring? It is a display of the inbreaking of the future kingdom into the present. And one early church father, speaking on this discourse, said, quote, He was bright as the lightning on the mountain, and he became more luminous than the sun before them, 
initiating us all into the mystery of the future. End quote. But notice, secondly, about the... So we see the inbreaking of the future into the present with this moment of luminous light emanating from our Lord. But the second piece, the second glass into our spectacle lens in order to see the substance of the passage is Jesus' prayerfulness. This gives us insight into the meaning of the transfiguration as well. Look at verses 28 and 29. So here, Peter, James, and John, are prepared. they're going to see this display of the inbreaking of the future. They're on the mountain. And at the end of verse 28, we see what's taking place on the mountain. And he, they went up with him to pray. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white now consider for a moment about let's meditate on jesus's prayerfulness consider for a moment what he is praying about so now you have a promise of the display of the kingdom and you have our lord take these men and what does he do he begins praying you ask yourself again how is this contributing to the moments of transfiguration well what is he praying about does the text give us any indication well consider just earlier in verse 22 and 21 verse 21 of the same passage gives us insight into what is he up there praying about verse 21 and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying the son of man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and he must be killed and he must be raised on the third day notice also an indication so he just finishes speaking to them about his coming death now he removes after this discourse to go and to begin praying you're asking yourself what is he praying about remember what he's just discussed now, look forward in the passage and consider how this continues to build. Look in verse 30, um, verse 30, where it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Look in verse 51 of the same passage. Again, we're asking ourselves, what is it that he's praying about? He spoke to them about his suffering. He spoke to them about his death. Now he's praying and he's speaking. And it's about Jerusalem. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. If we were to just briefly answer in one way, what is it that our Lord is here on the mountain with these men praying about? It is these very events. Praying about his suffering. It is praying about what is to come. It is praying about Jerusalem. Here our Lord is praying about his obedient death on behalf of his people. He is pouring out his concern with his face set toward Jerusalem. The ones who are within earshot of our Lord's prayer as the Son of Man and the obedient Son of God who must 
suffer many things is Peter, James, and John. Consider one other key indicator in this text that I think gives us insight. Again, as we move towards answering the question, what is the transfiguration then? So, so, so we see it, it's in some sense an inbreaking of the future in reference to the kingdom. And now we're, we're connecting it also to the spirit of prayer and the content of our Lord's prayerfulness. One other key indicator within the text that helps us grasp what the content of his prayer was is verse 30 and 31. Look real closely with me once again in verse 30 and 31 in order to grasp what is our Lord praying about. Verse 29. And as he was praying, and, and that's important, it, it's, it, it, consider the movement of the passage. It, it's during his prayers. So, so that's connecting what's going on in the transfiguration. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, now, now you're sticking with as he was praying, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. What were they speaking about during the prayerfulness of our Lord? What, were they, what was the content of their speech? What was going on? They spoke of his departure and notice the, the last phrase very carefully which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem there are three things that stand out from this text that I want to put forward to you that help us understand what exactly is going on in the discussion between Moses Elijah and Jesus and this is connected to or helping us understand why the emanation of light why is the transfiguration occurring or what does it mean that he began to emanate heavenly light three things that they spoke of i think we can see within this text very clearly number one as our lord was praying and speaking of moses and elijah they spoke of fulfillment this is important as we read the passage Moses and Elijah represent the entirety of the law and the prophets. Consider the appearance of these two men. All that they spoke of, all that they preached, all that they promised, all that they foretold is coming to fulfillment in the man Jesus of Nazareth, in the Son of God. So you see, as Moses and Elijah appear, as our Lord is praying about, I must suffer, I must endure, I must be rejected, I must be killed, and I must be raised. And then he moves to quietness of a mountain, taking with him who will see the kingdom of God in breaking in time and space. Peter, James, and John, what is he speaking of? Here's Moses, here's Elijah. They're speaking of fulfillment. It is as if the entirety of the Old Covenant, the entirety of the Old Testament, represented by these two heads of state in the Old Testament, the entire Old Covenant Scripture stands to say that everything pointed to and is coming together 
into the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the disciples should have recognized. That's what they should have seen. They spoke of fulfillment. Number two, what else filled out this prayer and this speech between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus? Number two, they spoke of redemption. This is significant, of course. But notice how it's told to us in the text. There's a term that stands out to us in verse 31 that gives us insight into the, the content of his speech as redemption. The term you'll notice there in verse 31 is departure. So he's talking with Moses and Elijah who'd appeared in glory. And they spoke of his, and the term in the Greek text is actually exodus. That's significant. That it's not just simply that he is going away. But what his going away through the cross means. They're speaking of his exodus. One commentator makes this comment. He says, quote, the term exodus refers not simply to his death, but also to the way his death would lead his people out of the world and into the promised land. That's what they're speaking about. That's where his heart is burdened. That's why he removed himself for prayer. He's speaking to Moses, the figure, the forerunner of Exodus events, the leading of the people of God out of slavery and into a promised land. This is significant. This is why Moses is there. This is why Moses and Jesus speak. And this is what they speak about. Our Lord, that is the Son of Man who must suffer. Not that he might, but he must. In order that he might lead you out of sin and slavery and into the promised land. This is why he's about to emanate light in the text. They're speaking of redemption. The third piece there, so as they speak of the entirety of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. And they're speaking of his leading his people out and in to the promised land through redemption and his must dying, his must suffering and his must being raised. They thirdly spoke of victory. This, this is the beautiful aspect of the text. It is already accomplished. They speak with one another in terms of victory. Notice how we see this in the text. So they speak of his exodus. And notice how they're speaking about it. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you see... Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus in reference to his obedience on the cross in terms of victory and accomplishment. What is it, though, we must think is he accomplishing? 
tie it back to Exodus. You see, his death is an accomplishment because his death is on our behalf. His death is an accomplishment because his sacrifice on the cross is for our sin, not his own. His death is an accomplishment and a victory won for all his people in order that he might accomplish our exodus, our deliverance. So they speak of it in terms of accomplishment. But what does that have to do then, finally, if we take the promise of the kingdom that now Peter, James, and John are moving into this experience on the mountainside, our Lord is then, with this sense, with Peter, James, and John, our Lord is now moved in prayer, and he is speaking with Moses and Elijah about accomplishment. Now, what do these two pieces of spectacle, that you look at the text then, what then does that mean, or attach, how does it attach to the emanation of light? I would suggest to you this. The unprecedented heavenly light that emanates from Jesus while he is moved to prayer about his obedience is the Father's response of affirmation that he is indeed the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. It is heaven's affirmation as our Lord pours out his heart regarding his obedience. Remember, again, what could he be talking about but his death and deliverance? How do we know that? He's speaking about Jerusalem, his accomplishments there. His face is set to go to Jerusalem. His face was set toward Jerusalem. And in that moment of prayer and concern, the Father looks upon the Son with pleasure. He affirms, indeed, that the Son of Man must suffer on behalf of his people. And the emanation of light of the future into the presence is the Father's affirmation. He will rise and be the King in glory. That's the inbreaking of the future into the presence. He will be raised three days later. He will be the king in glory. This is why Peter, James, and John are said to have, you will see the kingdom of God before you die. The transfiguration of our Lord is this glimpse, this preview of the heavenly reign of our Lord which follows after the humiliation of the cross. This is an extremely important piece for us to grasp. He has already explained it to us, right, in, 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 in verse 23. And he said to everybody, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Let him take his cross up daily, every day. And in that cruciformed existence, follow me. 
Now here we have the same thing, the same paradigm at work in our Lord. He is heading toward Jerusalem. He is the king who is on the cross. Why is it so important to recognize that the cross and glory are inextricably linked in the life of our Lord? Why? Think about that just for a moment. The cross and glory are inextricably linked in the life of Jesus. Because once again, as followers, the cross and glory are inextricably linked to our life as well. We follow a cruciform path. Trial and tribulation, difficulty and challenge. Living by faith, not things that we can simply see, observe, touch, and taste. We're on a pilgrim's journey of difficulty and tribulation, turbulence and life. But it's no different than as we see, as disciples, we would follow the path of our Lord, who also is a king on the way to the cross. Glory comes after the cross. But finally, notice the heavenly affirmation of the Father upon the Son goes beyond the emanation of inexplainable lights. It moves to command. Notice the response of Peter here. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, something they they seem to do quite often in, in moments of prayer. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. So, so see, that, that right there, there you have it. There are some standing here who will not die until they see the kingdom of God. When they woke up, they saw his glory. They saw the light. They saw what was taking place. They saw him transfigured. And they saw the two men who were standing with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying. And as he was saying these things, he's still speaking. A cloud came over and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered that cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. My chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Consider the divine command here. First, notice Luke's editorial comment about Peter. Do you see at the end of verse 33? Not knowing what he said. You see, Peter was excited here as he's looking upon the glory of Moses, undoubtedly, wonderfully leading the people of God, leaving a tremendous legacy, one that Peter was undoubtedly immersed in and familiar, familiar with. 
And then you have Elijah, again, a tremendous head of the prophets, just full of joy and excitement at seeing Elijah. And so a very natural response, and we say natural because Luke wants us to. He says he didn't really know what he was saying. But a very natural response of Peter is to say, hey, this is great. There's so much to honor and love about all three of you. This is good for us. Tabernacle among us. Everybody stay. Let's have a feast. Let's learn. Let's honor. Let's sit at your feet. Let's be together. This is good for us, Jesus. Good idea. We should have everybody stay. Let's be together. And again, Luke says he just didn't get what was going on. And so God graciously, yet severely, speaks to each of them in the cloud. And he gives them this important command for each and every one of us this morning. He says in verse 35, as you saw there, the response to Peter. It's good that we look at everybody. We recognize all. And, Jesus, and God says, no, this one, this Jesus of Nazareth, who at the end is standing there all alone. This is my son. Listen to him. You see, what God makes thunderously clear to Peter, to James, and to John is that what is true of Jesus, it, uh, this is significant for us at the conclusion of our time together as we move to the Lord's table. What is true of Jesus is not true of Moses is not true of Elisha and is not true of anyone else in human history either. You see, while Moses significantly and importantly pointed to the glory of God in his ministry, Elijah does the same, pointing people to the glory of God. Jesus alone is the glory of God. This Peter didn't know what he was saying when he said, let's have everybody stay. No, Jesus uniquely, solely is the Son of God, the glory of God. He no more points. He is its sum total, the glory of God. So we move in the gospel to see here in the transfiguration that Jesus, as he prays, facing and thinking toward Jerusalem, he is the Savior who dies. This we celebrate in the table. As we see him stand next to Moses and stand next to Elijah, we see, as God does speak of him uniquely, that Jesus is the prophet who teaches. And in the emanation of light, we see the promise that Jesus is the king who reigns. The question of the passage then still rests with us. Do you listen to him. As he asked earlier in the topic, do you follow him? Now, 
of the text has to be, do you in following continue to listen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the inbreaking of the presence of the future in our hearts, that we belong to you, that you are the risen king and we are your kingdom citizens. We thank you for our adoption and our sonship and being in you as daughters and sons of God. We praise you for your supremacy. We eat at your table. We have heard you in your word. Let us taste you in this table. Thank you for graciously condescending to us through these elements that, Lord, we would be assured. Oh, that we doubt. You graciously provide even a physical way of us to be reassured of your promises. Thank you for your obedience in going to Jerusalem. Thank you, Father, for raising the Son three days later. Thank you for your promise to return for us. As we journey, let us live by faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.